Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Mark Goldblatt, ACE. Mark was nominated for an Oscar and an Ace Eddie for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. He was also nominated for an Ace Eddie for True Lies and was awarded the American Cinema Editor's Career Achievement Award last year in 2018. His editing career started in 1978, and his films include movies like The Howling, the original Terminator movie, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, X-Men, The Last Stand, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and Death Wish. Today, Mark and I discuss the cutting decisions of many of the movies in his long career. I just interviewed uh, Gus Van Sant and his editor, and it's really interesting to me that you have edited with a couple of directors that also edit. Uh, that's kind of in- an interesting thing. How did, like, uh, Joe Dante, right? Well, Joe Joe was an editor before he was a director. Yeah. That was his, his metier. He, he started uh, editing films. Actually, he used to edit on a projector. On a projector? Yes. That was, he did a thing called the Schlitz Movie Orgy back way before he did Hollywood Boulevard. It was a compendium of a lot of public domain footage from feature films from the 30s and 40s and 50s. Wow. And it was an amazing piece of work. And somehow or other, he and John Davison were doing this together. John Davison produced this. Basically, he would just take bits from different movies and juxtapose them with other bits from other movies. And it was a constantly changing thing. And somehow or other, they got seed money from the Schlitz Brewing Company. (laughs) And they distributed it on college campuses around the country. And they had, you know, screenings of this piece of work. It was like four or five hours. Pretty amazing. That's interesting. So he, he learned how to edit literally by cutting pieces of film out from, with a projector. Then he moved on to movieolas. Uh, anyway, John Davison was out here working for Roger Corman, and he got the opportunity to produce... Uh, Hollywood Boulevard, but even that, even before that, he brought Joe into the Corman fold and got him cutting uh, trailers. So he was a trailer editor along with Alan Arkish. The two of them wore the New World Editing Department along with a guy named Miller Drake. Uh, James Cameron would be another director who at least has taken cre- some editing credit in his films. He, uh, when, when I first worked with him, he wasn't editing. But Jim, as you know, I'm sure, is a very technical person. Uh, you know, he's the kind of guy who, when he was, you know, even thinking of becoming a filmmaker, he he realized that it was incumbent upon him to educate himself with every aspect of the craft. And he, he learned how to use cameras by taking them apart and putting them back together again. He he learned to master all the equipment that a director really needs to have under him uh, to make a movie, Mm. rather than just leave it up to the camera department to know how to work a camera. Jim knew how to work the camera. So he would know as much about the camera, pretty much, as the DP would know by the time they were shooting together. 
So he was always able to make very informed choices, lighting choices, uh, lens choices. Uh, he understood. And he understood editing, too. Uh, when I worked with him, he wasn't a hands-on editor, but he realized that to become a master of the craft, uh, he knew he wanted to become a hands-on person. And he understood the power and understands today the power of editing. And the true power of editing is to get the most out of it and the most involvement in it, you have to totally submerge yourself in the process of doing it. You have to actually do it. You have to get into all the footage and swim through it and manipulate it. It's different when you sit outside of it and tell somebody what you think you want them to do based on what you perceived to be the pieces of film. It's another mm -hmm. thing when you're in the flow, in the streams, of the, uh, in the ocean with the fish, and you're dealing with all of that stuff, and you're actually doing it, then you, you get the aha, that's how you do it. And you do it by hands-on control. He understood that the, the power of truly getting things edited to a final nth degree of satisfaction, you always have to do it yourself. If you don't do it yourself, then somebody else is doing it, and you're advising them, which is fine, and that works for a lot of people. But if you really want to know what your options are, you've got to take the pill. It's like you've got to drop the acid and go. And <laughs> drop the acid and go. Okay, there's the quote for the day. <laughs> um, and then you also kind of followed the same uh, path because you uh, were second unit director on RoboCop and you directed Dead Heat and The Punisher. How do your editing skills then translate to being a better director? I mean, my editing skills tell me what it is that I think I want to have to make a scene better. As an editor, when you're dealing with the film that's already been shot, you're a little late in the day and a little late in the game to be writing out a list of shots that you don't have that you wish you did have because you missed the boat. So one of, the, one of the things that the editing skills gives you is it gives you a sense of understanding that there are different pieces and different types of different pieces of film that you would want to cover a scene with, a performance or an action or a group of activities that you're going to represent filmically. You'd want to cover them in specific ways that you, as a filmmaker, are looking at the reality of this story and, and that you want to highlight aspects of the story or a psychology of the story or a psychology of the characters involved in the story, in the conflict, in the quest, in the mystery of the film, the unraveling of the film. How would you tell this story? There's a zillion different ways to do it. And through editing, we know what those ways are just by compartmentalizing the different kinds of building blocks, the shots that we have, out of which we make the final picture. Mm -hmm. You just learn certain storytelling skills. I mean, they're, they're, they're rudimentary in a sense. It's a palette. Uh, for example, we're talking now. I see your close-up. You're nodding your head. I'm looking at you. I'm seeing that you're listening to me. You're listening to me. Now I can cut back to myself and you'll see me and I'm listening to you. We can play this whole scene with the other person talking off camera and cutting back and forth, for example. You can do anything you want and you can manipulate space and time to do it. And you can go in the future and in the past back and forth 
You can tell stories linearly or non-linearly. You know, it's like it's like if you're a clothing designer. A lot of times we make an analogy between making clothing and making a movie. A movie is a suit made out of whole cloth. It's got a concept. You cut it to a design pattern. You get the pieces together and you try to make the pieces work together and make a great piece of clothing or a great piece of cinema. It's the same thing. It's technological, it's intellectual, and it's spiritual. Mm. You can you can be very decisive in what you're doing and methodical and think about it. I thought I would go to this, and now I'm going to go to the close-up of the hand coming down, and now a big close-up of the quill of the pen, or, or whatever you want to do. It sky's the limit. So it's a flexible reality based on a screenplay, as a story, a plan. It's all based on a plan. It's based on a script. But once you shoot the script, you're in another place. You have the script. It's on your table. But this is what you shot. Now, that's what you got to make a movie out of, what you shot. And you can manipulate that footage. You can add new lines of dialogue. You can go out and shoot new shots to add to it if you have the time and inclination. And, and you keep making it better and better and better. You've always got a vision. You're getting in tune with the process of the piece of work that you're working on. You can't find the rhythms. You let the universe speak to you and tell you where to make the next cut, the next move, the next layer of storytelling. It's pretty exciting stuff. When you're shooting the picture, you're under a lot of pressure because you've got to keep cutting that film and putting it together to see if it's working. And make sure you've got everything that you need. And make sure that you haven't forgotten the most important things that you might need. Beyond a certain point, it's too late to get those things. Except by spending a lot of money to rebuild sets and call actors back. So you really want to know that the movie's working. And it's a, it's a race against time because you've got to know the answers. You've got to know. On the couple of films that you directed, what was your relationship with your editor? My relationship with my editors is pretty good, uh, very good. Uh, you know, I have a great deal of respect for editors because I'm an editor myself. You know, the best projects that I've worked on, the best collaborations that I've had are occasions in which the director let me loose to do my thing. Sometimes you work with a director who's very hands-on to the point where, don't make a cut without my sitting here telling you where to cut. Now, that's all very well and good if you, if, you, if you both agree that you can work that way. But what's the point? What's the point of hiring somebody to do something when they may be capable through their objectivity because they're fresh to the material, they have no emotional investment in the creation of that material, they don't care how many hours you spent on the set to make this great crane shot that must be in the picture because I spent all day working on it, but you're better off without it. Well, I don't care. I spent all day working on it. It's going to be in the movie. You've got to be ruthless with your material because you're making a movie. And, and it's a process in which you're sifting and winnowing through the material and responding to it in ways that you didn't know that you would be responding to it because you didn't know what the material was really going to be because the material takes on a life of its own. Why did you choose not to co-edit with those editors that you worked with, or did you kind of behind the scenes and you were just uncredited? Well, I did do behind the scenes editing because I couldn't resist. And, uh, and 
I, I figured, listen, I'm a pretty good editor. And why don't I want to utilize myself? I'm there. I can I can really edit well sometimes, <laughs> you know? And and so of course I want to edit my own movies. But I believe also that collaboration with another person is key in the filmmaking process. It's very much a collaborative process. And one of the things that you get is a type of objectivity in which that person, the editor of your film that you hire, is going to come to it in a fresh perspective, a way different than you. You've already got a perspective. You, you created the shot list. You did the storyboard with the storyboard artists. You conceptualize what your intention was in that footage, and you conceptualize how that material would be shot. And then, of course, you shot it, and you interacted with the actors, and the actors came off with new input, and different things happened, and the sun went down too fast, and you lost your light, or you ran out of time shooting, and you have to make the scene work, even though you didn't get the whole shot list, or whatever it is that happened, you've got a new reality, you got to deal with the film in a new in a new way. That's where a collaboration of somebody who has objectivity can help you. When I'm editing for somebody else, I feel that I offer them a different perspective. I'm not trying to railroad them and tell them that they have to do it my way. I just want to be able to present what my ideas are. I don't want to work with somebody who doesn't want to hear what I have to say. That's that's kind of pointless. And as a director. I want somebody to tell me what they're thinking, not what they think I want to hear. I know what I want to hear. Tell me something new. Show me what's going on right. Take the opportunity to make this movie project, your movie project as well, and invest yourself and put your identity in it too. That's a collaboration. If I respect the work that I do, I respect the work that my collaborators do as much or more than myself and give them space to do it. And then we collaborate and we argue and we disagree. Let's disagree, that's fine. Let's find the best possible way to present each moment to this movie. One of the other collaborations you've done in addition to your collaborations with directors is your collaboration with other editors. You obviously edit by yourself a lot, but you've also edited with groups of other editors. How does that yes. work? And, and what what's some of the things you've learned from the people you've edited with? Well. Editing with a, a group of people, usually you do it because the picture is so vast. Either there's a lot of footage or a very challenging structure to the film or a short schedule and a lot of footage. Whatever it is, there's a reason why you need to have more hands on deck. The best thing is when you're dealing with people who are like-minded creatively, who respect each other's work, who are willing to give up their ego and have a shared creative experience. And of course, you must be in the same rhythmic relationship with the editor or with the director as well, because the director is the creative master person of the project. The director has the vision. The director is the natural set, will make the scenes and hopefully put a bit of their personality into what they're doing and make it their own. Your job is to find the pulse of the film and, and understand the intentions of the director and work towards the director's intentions to an end product that reflects what the director wants, what the movie wants, what the movie wants to be. 
movie takes on a life of its own. You have to shepherd this. And so you work collaboratively with your fellow editors. Sometimes you work on different parts of the movie. Sometimes you just take alternating scenes because that's the latest. You know, I'm ready for a new scene. What do we got that hasn't been cut? All right, I'll do that scene. Okay, then you can pick it up over there because you're in the next scene. And then let's look at it together and discuss it. We'll come up with creative ideas together. And it's great. When you're on the same wavelength, it's a beautiful thing. So it can be a, a wonderful experience. I mean, there's other times when you've got different editors who are working independently of each other. For example, the studio may bring somebody in to give a point of view, or as the director wants to work with his particular editor to do his point of view. The director has certain rights through guild arbitration and certain creative rights to present his version of the film and take it to previews and so on and so forth. The studio may have final cut, usually does, and may or may not exercise it, or may exercise it in a collaborative way, or if they're really creatively at odds with the director, they may take a more proactive approach and be forceful about the changes they want to make. And then they often have a contractual right to do it. You hope that it doesn't get to that point. You hope, and the hope is, that everyone collaborates because they're trying to make the best picture and that hopefully somewhere there's a meeting of the minds as to what the best picture is out of the myriad possibilities of making a movie go in many different directions. It gets tricky. It gets political. Uh, by the way, the politics and the, the political structure of the collaboration are very much a part of what we have to deal with on a daily basis. And I know that your skills as an editor probably increased as you got uh, further and further in your career, but one of the things that I've talked to many people about is that that political understanding of the edit room is one of the true signs of a veteran editor, that they understand what to say, when to say it, and who to say it to. You try. Sam Fuller used to say, movies are a battlefield. And movies are just a battlefield. That's why he always used to Instead of calling action, he had a gun and he would shoot it. And that's when he would go into action. Bam! We're on. Game on. We're going. It's the battle. And it, it is a struggle. It's, it's a struggle of ideas. It's, 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 it's a struggle of keeping your sanity and keeping your vision clear in your mind at all costs, holding on to it, but also knowing when to switch directions at the drop of a dime because that's where the movie is taking you to go. And it's like riding an animal. It's like, you know, a wild stallion. You've got to get in into that ride and you've got to control the ride. You've got to become one with it. Mm -hmm. it, it it's just very challenging. So it requires that you be relaxed, that you don't take things too emotionally, that you are present, you've got to be very conscious of the footage all the time, the performances, the story arcs, the personalities behind the scenes that you're dealing with. You've got to juggle everything and always putting the movie first. It's for the film, whatever it takes to make it work. And that kind of passion, I think, gets you a long way down the road.
because it's a creative passion, it's a responsibility, just like a sacred trust. If we who love films and we who love cinema take the investment of our times and our efforts and our talent and our consciousness and our ability to reach out to each other and work as a team to help further the positive aspects of creativity, then we're in a good place. I mean, that's kind of airy-fairy, but we, I'm telling you, it's better when you're all directing your, your energies in the same way and not second-guessing and not running on fear. There's a lot of fear in making movies. There's a lot of money at stake. A lot of people are worried about their jobs. It's understandable. But you've got to let all that stuff go. And you've got to seize the film and commit. That's basically what it is. True commitment. It's beyond a job. It's a calling. Life imitates art. You mentioned uh, there's kind of an interesting opposing ideas and two things that you said that I think would be really interesting to explore with you. Uh, one is that you need to manipulate the film, right? That's a very common idea for editors that you have to manipulate it to make well, it. That's what we do. Right. But the other idea is the, the film has to speak to you and you've got to, kind of like you were saying with the wild animal, you've got to ride it a little bit where the animal wants to go and a little bit where you want the animal to go. Correct. Correct. You need to be conscious of what's going on in the first place. So you need to be able to watch the movie. Now, that's not always so easy to do. Because sometimes you get a preconception of what you think the movie is. But things may change. The character arcs may flow and ebb and flow. Maybe there's a performance issue. Uh, an actor is maybe grappling to try to find the hook of his performance. Uh, which may result in a false moment on the screen. On the screen. Or maybe uh, it's a moment of self-questioning of the character himself. You can use these quirks to further the intensity of the story and the depth of the emotion. What is the movie except, as Bogdanovich calls them, pieces of time that are all strung together to create a reality? It's nuance. In other words, you need to be able to respond to the quirkiness of performance. I mean, there's, there's beautiful moments to be had. And sometimes you have to Take your preconceptions of where you think you're going and just let them loose for a second and let the footage work for you. And then step back and see if it's working objectively in the movie. Objectivity is the hardest thing for an editor to hold on to. Because you get into a certain role, you get into a certain mindset, but you need to be open to constant changes and, and, and things that may be effective in the movie that, that exist in the footage that maybe you didn't think about. You just need to be wide open. You need to be awake. How do you maintain your objectivity? What's a key to, or what's a, a trick you have? Well, I have a lot of tricks. One trick is I would often look at the film in different formats. For example, uh, say I'm shooting in scope. So I see things in a two, three, five frame. I may play, play a scene back, squeeze it together in a one, three, three frame so that I'm not looking at it the normal way I look at it, I'm looking at it differently. Still the same dialogue tracks, same cuts. I might desaturate the color and look at it in black and white so that I'm not affected by the emotional beats that the, that the color may add to things. 
maybe I just don't want the raw drama. Sometimes I'll stand up, I'll walk around. Walter Murch used to put, talks about how he puts the audience, he cuts out people sitting in the first, second, and third rows of the movie and puts it in front of the screen. So he's like watching it from the theater. So that gives you a theater experience. Anything you can do to make things different for yourself. I like to stand up a lot. It's funny, I used to, when I cut on film, I used to stand all the time. You know, we used to cut on film with celluloid, with moviolas, with giant steam, uh, moviola machines that would run the film up and down. We had tons of movie film around our necks and in bins. It's the same thing we do digitally, but, but it was physical. So you'd have actual big metal bins holding bits of film and little four-frame trims that your assistants would have to keep track of. I used to have two moviolas, one side by side, and I would move. I would try to move. Walter Murch, who's a great poet of explaining uh, the art of editing, the art and metaphysics of filmmaking, calls it the, a dance. It is a dance because the, the flow of the movie that you make is very musical and very rhythmic and very much cosmic in its rhythms. You're tapping into consciousness. You're tapping into dreams. And there's a, the actors are performing in certain uh, precise ways that create rhythms of performance. And then you have rhythms of character and then rhythms of relationships between two characters talking or looking at each other or having a love scene together. So you have to just be responsive to the, the dialectics, which is the oppositional juxtapositions of characters and images. And, and at the same time, there's a flow of actually the process of cutting the films. And it's got its own rhythm. Now, if you can get the cutting of the rhythmic realities, the practical physical manipulation, the splicing of the film, the taping of the film, the, the running of the film, Backwards, forwards, backwards, marking out, take your next trim. There's a rhythm, there's a dance, there's, there's a relationship between all of your physicality of editing, which nowadays is a keyboard and a mouse or whatever you use or a pen, and you become part of the, the movement dance as well. So, and there's a movement also in creative thought because you're thinking about the next cut even as you're doing the pre-pressing cut. So it's very musical and very rhythmic. And somehow there's an interconnectivity, I'm saying, between the actual physical process of editing and the intellectual creative process of, of making the film, which is over and above the physical nature of what you're doing. So the thought process. Do you miss the physicality of cutting on film? I do, but it's, different. it's a different thing. But I, I'll never forget it. And I think it lives within me, and I translate uh, the editing that I do digitally into filmic. For example, when, when cutting film on celluloid, you were dealing with strips of film, 24 frames per second. So you would think in terms of frames. Now we still, today, especially those of us who started in film, think in terms of frames, even though we're not really holding frames anymore. But we're using frames as a subdivision that gives us a language in which we can even talk about durations of holding a cut. It's like I tell you, why don't you try cutting two frames off the tail of that shot and give yourself two frames of space 
before the entrance of the character on the next shot. Try that. All right, let him exit halfway out of the frame. And now pick him up on the third frame walking in over there because your eye is following on the previous shot. And then when we cut to the next shot, he'll be in the same place and it's a seamless cut. Mm, yep, exactly. So, because we're doing a lot of that stuff. We're doing seamless editing for storytelling purposes to lose yourself in the movements of the picture. But at the same token, we may want to do abrupt, obvious editing to create shock effects, emotional dissonance, uh, whatever it is that we're trying to do. We're constantly trying to elicit emotion. So we use techniques that may appeal to certain emotions. How do we get an audience to cry? Maybe you do it by cutting to the reaction shots of the people who are affected by the speech that's going on in the room. I, I mean, whatever it is, you're, you're thinking of emotion. Emotion is the key. As Sam Fuller said, emotion pictures. They're emotion pictures. It's all emotion. Emotion pictures instead of motion pictures. Yeah. I love that. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's, that's actually an interesting discussion about the frame thing because I had an old boss that hated it when I would dis when I would say, oh, well, you know, should I cut six frames out? And he goes, you can't edit by numbers. I'm like, I'm not trying to edit by numbers. I'm trying to describe what I'm going to do. Um, yeah. You mentioned uh, Merch, and you got to cut with him on uh, The Wolfman. How, how did that relationship go, and did you, what did you learn from him that you carried forward? I mean, that was kind of late. It was later in your editing career, or mid. Yeah, well, that was, that was a strange movie. The, the movie had issues. We were trying to make a better movie out of it. Uh, I was called in by the studio. Walter was hired by the director to work with him. We kind of collaborated. I would try things. The director was still in charge of the cut. Mm -hmm. They would take things that I did and use them. Other things they would discard. So it was respectful and, uh, you know, all in the effort of trying to come up with new ideas and things to make the, the movie play better. That's a hard thing. If, you were, if he was hired by the director and you were hired by the producer, though, that, that's trouble right there, I think. Oh, it, 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 it was a troubled relationship. Uh. Not, not between him and me, necessarily. But it was unclear what was going on. The director was trying to make his movie. The studio was trying to help but also impose certain things that they wanted. But at the end of the day, it was like, let's just try everything and hope that as much of it works. There's a very interesting moment in your career because you're mostly a live-action guy. How did you end up on the SpongeBob movie, and what did you learn about editing animation? I, I think I wound up on the SpongeBob movie because I've been doing a lot of visual effects pictures. Ah, uh, yeah. Visual effects pictures are not that far removed from animation pictures in that you do you deal with a lot of pre-visualization and you try to cut the scene in previs so that you get a very strong sense of what you're making in in the animation. Because you can't you can't just make this stuff up as you go. It's too expensive. So when you go to animation, you pull the trigger and say, yes, that's the scene. We're animating this feed here and here and here and here and here. So you need to have an approved choreography and mise-en-scene for the scenes. So in this movie, the SpongeBob movie, 
with a live action animation film in that portions of the movie took place in the real world, a human world, in which the SpongeBob characters would be operating so that their real world that they were going to be living in was shot in reality, but the animation was added to it afterwards. So you needed to know exactly where the characters were, how long the camera move is to correspond to the characters moving, panning, jumping onto a vehicle, driving around, running on the beach. It was pretty tricky. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was really an extension of the visual effects. I mean, animation is not my forte particularly. Uh, but, but because this was live action animation, it was like it was like a visual effects movie. Yeah. For example, more recently it was uh, the, the Rise of the Planet of the Apes, where the apes were all played by actors uh, who would do performance capture performances wearing green suits, motion sensors, and things like that in real settings and on locations. So you would, you would cut real human performances, and then those human performances would be transmutated into animated, augmented performances, but they would keep the underpinnings of the human performance. And that's what Jim Cameron uh, did so well in Avatar. And uh, the Apes movie used that technology too. And that technology is becoming more and more refined as a way of getting performance, capture performances, you know, pioneered by Andy Serkis. So, yeah, I, I, I like it. It's an extension of the visual effects stuff I've been doing for decades, where you really do have to lock the story points down early in the game before you make the shots. You've added a lot of science fiction and a lot of horror stuff. What, mm -hmm. What's the role for you when you're cutting the roughs of those things, of sound effects, to make to sell the reality of some things that are pretty unreal? Well, it's sky's the limit, basically. You want to put in as many cool sound effects as possible because sound works on an emotional and primal level, a visceral level. So when you're dealing with suspense, and mystery, and other worlds, it's all very useful to create an audio context. So, I mean, I used to put in, when, when time permits, I would put in a lot of sounds myself. I'd get my assistants to do a lot of the work as well. I mean, sometimes I'm too caught up in the day-to-day -day editing process of just getting the movies into a first cut to concentrate heavily on this music and sound. But, you know, starting on the independent pictures that I used to do, I used to do all that stuff myself, the sound and the temp music. Because, and yeah, you still do that, because there's no time to turn it over to a music editor. You've got to get yesterday's footage edited today, and you've got to be able to show it. So somebody might walk into your editing room, a director, who needs to see what the scene looks like, because he doesn't know. Is it working? Did I get everything I needed? How do you figure that out? You only figure it out by watching the scene. So I have to cut the scene to the best of my ability, as if it was ready to go into the theater yesterday. That's what you have to do. And you have to do it with music and sound because that's what everyone expects to see and hear. And that's what you're doing. You're, it's like you're running a movie that's finished. And you have to do it on a daily basis. How did you make that transition from uh, Moviola to uh, NLE? When did that happen? Do you remember what film you were on? 
the first film I did digitally was True Lies. Uh, Jim had offered me the picture along with Conrad Buff, and uh, and then we knew Richard Harris was going to join us later. And he made it clear that we were going to cut on Abbott. He had purchased Abbott to do the movie. So I had a little lead time. I did not know how to work in Abbott at that point. So I enrolled in a class, basically. Uh, I was cutting on film. I, in fact, I did a little job while I was waiting for True Lies to start. I worked on a film, uh, Tombstone, uh, which a friend of mine, George Cosmatos, was directing. And I was there basically in, in an interim position to just work on scenes as they were shooting and help keep everything together and make sure we were getting everything we needed, knowing that I would have to leave that project to go in, in, into my training for the Avid to do True Lies. It's interesting, on that project, I was cutting on film, on movieolas, and using a picture synchronizer, which is a device that I had learned on as a, as a film student back in London, where I went to film school. It's a device that we didn't really have in the United States. It's a synchronizer that had three soundtracks and a picture head. The picture head was interlocked to the soundtracks. So you could run it by hand, you could run it with a little lever, or you could play it 24 frames a second back and forth, and the film would just drop into the bin. It's like a flatbed that's hand-cranked. It was a great way to cut, because I was very fast on a movie I used to cut. I hadn't used a pick sync in decades, and I just decided I was going to do it on this movie because I could. Plus, I knew I was going to go digital soon. And I wanted to explore other ways of cutting film just because I could. And it worked out really well for me. I, I had a great time cutting it on, on, on that device. That's very interesting. I, I The only time I've seen one of those is uh, I actually went over to Alan Heim's house and he showed me uh, one that he has. Alan has a lot of wonderful, wonderful <laughs> memorabilia. Great, great editing machine. Yeah, he's got a, like a little museum. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. It's terrific. And he loves those machines. He knows what he knows. He can take them apart. He understands the history of the editing technology very well. Is there anything that you uh, either feel like you're able to carry with you from film to editing linearly or things that you wish that you could still do? Um, things that you prefer, digital over film? I mean, digital is just, how can I say it? I, once I went digital, I really never went back. I mean, unless I was forced to. I mean, on one occasion, I had to go back to film because somebody had wiped the drives of the movie. Oh. And we released it, and I had to do a new version of the movie. It was Showgirls, and they had to have a special blockbuster video version of the movie. Uh, that wasn't rated R, uh, but was more rated R than NC-17, which was what we had originally. And so I had to do it on film. And I enjoyed it, just because it was a trip down memory lane. But, you know, random access and the freedom that digital editing has provided for us trumps everything else. Uh, in terms of storytelling, you can make myriad versions of the scene, you can do temp visual effects, you can do Pretty darn good. Temp dubs. Uh, you can do it all. 
can change the speed of the shot. You can ramp things up. You can slow things down. You can blow them up. You can flip them. You can take shots and cut them into different pieces and take elements from different takes and put them all in the same shot. It opened up for us a completely enlarged, seemingly never-ending palette of possibilities of manipulation of image and sound. It's getting better every day. It's just amazing. There's no, there's no doubt that that's a revolution in film editing and in filmmaking. And now that we do so much stuff digitally completely in the digital realm, because so many films are shot digitally, uh, we're, we're, we're manipulating the digital image from day one. Since you you just worked on Death Wish, correct? That's the last film I got, yes. Your last film. Did you ever try uh, this technique on a two-shot a lot? Because it's really only something you could do with digital, where you say, I want to change the timing of a performance and not you know, cut to a close-up to be able to change the timing, where you actually change the timing of the two-shot inside the two-shot. Sure. I mean, you may, you may have a four-shot, for example, and maybe, maybe you want there's four characters that are spread out in a scope frame in a room, and you may want to have character number three from a different take than character four and five and three. We think which character is standing where and what, and what they're saying at any given time. So we can, we can take a, any group shot and change the performances. If, if it's a moving shot, it's a lot more difficult. Yeah. And it may be diminishing returns. But in a static shot or a lockdown, we do it all the time. The two-shot may work better with the person reacting in a certain way on the right than they did in, in, in real time. Maybe you make a better relationship. Uh, another thing that I think of when the difference between film and a nonlinear editor is that ability to revise. Because if you talk to people, you know, of uh, film editing, oh, like Ann Coates, that if you, if a director wanted to see a different version of a cut, it meant undoing all your work and probably not getting it back unless you, <laughs> unless you pieced it all back together, right? Yeah, we used to make black and white dupes. Of, of a scene just to have a record of it. That way you have it. But that would take overnight to do. You really didn't want to tear the film apart and re rethink it unless you had a record of that first cut. So, I mean, we did it, but it was, talk about analog versus digital. It was like it was like the Pony Express versus FedEx. And, and, and look at what we can do today. We, 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 can, we can have the editor sitting in Tokyo and the director sitting in Malibu, talking to each other and looking at scenes together and changing and recutting just by remote control. Tell me a little bit about uh, Death Wish and your work on that project, since that was the most recent one. Can you remember one of the things that I am really interested in talking to editors about, two things, structure of the film, and mm -hmm. then closely related to it is anything with time being the superpower, time is the editor's superpower, I like to say, or Joe Walker said, I, I love that quote. What in that movie did you find that you either had to change the structure of or that you felt like, let's just manipulate time in a way that's not the same as in the script? Well, you know, time is manipulated all the time in a movie. There's real time and there's movie time. How many days does the movie take place? 
what is the frame of my uh, of reference? It's tricky. I, I mean, I can't tell you time-wise specifically what happened in that movie. What about structure? Well, the structure is one of which you have a, a typical American family, a hardworking professional, white-collar kind of guy, a doctor, upper-middle-class family, and, and basically through a, a home invasion, robbery attempt, main character, Bruce Willis's character, his life is upturned upside down. He loses his wife. She's murdered. His daughter is sent into a coma. Uh, everything that this guy has lived for is shattered. And he doesn't know what to do. He's at a loss. He's, he's depressed. He's clinically depressed. He can't work. He's lost his joie de vivre. He's lost his raison d'etre. The, the other thing is he's frustrated because nobody can find the perpetrators of the crime. That's, like a, that's kind of like a classic revenge story. And in a way, you know, Death Wish, the original Death Wish was a vigilante picture. Uh, this is a vigilante picture too, but it's more of a revenge picture. Uh, I think the vigilante aspect was softened somewhat just because of all the school shootings that have been occurring in our culture and the gun culture that we're in. And it's a very tricky thing. Uh, Eli Roth was trying to in some ways, comment on the gun culture of the United States and how we're so easily seduced into the gun culture through advertising, through entertainment. Entertainment. Well, true. I mean, the movie itself, you can argue that when you make a movie like this, are you perpetrating that culture or are you, or, or are you critiquing it in a, in a veiled way? I believe that we were critiquing it, but we're also making a movie that wants to go out into the world and entertain people. It was not a usually successful picture at the box office, and I think that's because people are getting oversaturated with the violence in the world. It, it, it touched upon a nerve that was potentially more raw than, than anyone really wants to deal with. Mm. So at the end of the day, it was hard. You didn't think of the movie as like, well, have a good time at the movie to shoot him up. It's like, this is too close to home. Innocent people getting slaughtered. Frustration leading to vigilantism. Although if you watch the movie, it's, it's structurally a lot like a classic Western movie. A cowboy whose family is unjustly destroyed. And the cowboy is a shell of the man he was, and he goes on a vendetta. So it's almost a classical kind of story. And that's the way I view it. Can you remember if there were any structural changes from the script and why those structural changes occurred? We just compressed things, basically. We, we squeezed it down a bit. Because, like, you know, oftentimes in a movie, you have more material than you really need for the pacing of the movie. I would love to hear some stories of, if you can remember... Uh, specific scenes that you actually remember cutting, why you cut them the way that you did, some of your favorite scenes in, in some of the big movies you've cut, like Terminator or True Lies. What were some of the motivating factors of those edits or those scenes? Uh, one of my favorite scenes is from the first Terminator movie. It's, we call it the tech noir scene. And it's the scene where Sarah Connor takes refuge in a discotheque. Uh, she knows she's being followed. She knows that a woman named Sarah Connor has been murdered. She knows 
that her roommate hasn't been answering the phone because she's been murdered too. She's trapped in the discotheque. She's been seeing this guy, Michael Bean's character, Kyle Reese, shadowing her. She tries to call the police from the disco. The police are on their way. Arnold Schwarzenegger playing the Terminator has located Sarah Connor at the disco. He enters into the disco looking for Sarah. Sarah's at a table drinking a beer. She drops a bottle. When she, when she bows down to get it in slow motion, we see the Terminator walking into the room looking for her, just missing her. And we see Kyle Reese in the corner watching everything, watching the Terminator, watching Sarah. It's a movie in which three major characters all meet up at the same point in time and collide. And it's a major, major scene in the movie in which we have three different points of view that we're in watching the scene, or a fourth point of view, if you count the audience point of view, the God point of view, in which we know everything that's going on. But the characters don't know everything that's going on. They only know what they see. So we see each character's point of view of what their reality is, and we see the overview. And all of this is getting closer and closer and closer and closer to a standoff in which all hell will break loose. And it does. Because finally the Terminator character sees Sarah Connor. And, it's, and Jim shot it in slow motion and in regular speed. So we, we use the slow motion for when Sarah gets into the discotheque. And she's disoriented. She's talked to the police. We know they're on their way. We see these other characters coming in. She is uh, out of her body in a sense. She's freaked out completely. She doesn't know what to do. Everybody's dancing in the disco to the music. And then the music kind of slows down because we're in slow motion. And people are dancing in slow motion. As Sarah's looking around and the Terminator's coming in and sees Sarah and goes for his gun. As Kyle Reese sees the Terminator going for his gun and he kills a bookshelf with a shotgun and starts to bolt it. As Sarah goes down to pick up the beer bottle and Bushy come out and be right in the line of fire when the Terminator shoots. And all these things are leading up to Kyle Reese shoots his shotgun. He shoots the Terminator before he gets to shoot Sarah. So then the Terminator's gun goes off and wings another person in the room. And then before we know it, they're all shooting at each other, Kyle and the Terminator. And Sarah is running for shelter as people are getting annihilated right and left, as the music has been overtaken on the track by the score, which is omnipresent and dark. And the rock and roll is still filtering through the beat of the rock and roll and chaos is supreme. And we go from this kind of slow motion buildup in which the three characters coalesce and then conflict, explosion, shooting, chaos, chase scene. And sends us into the first of a number of foot chase, there's a foot chase, there's a car chase. It's just propelling the, the intensity of the movie more and more and more. And do you, do you remember making the decisions about when you would go in and out of slow-mo? Yes. And uh, basically, it, would, it had to do... The thing that would shock us out of slow-mo was, was the first shot. Mm. It was like Sarah didn't get shot, but it's like the gunfire woke her up. Got it. And Kyle Reese is there. Come with me if you want to live. 
That's not slow motion. Although it's kind of slowed when Arnold reviving himself off the ground, having been blown out of a plate glass window, and we see that he's still alive and he's coming out. And you also had to make the decision of when to come in and out of the score from the disco music. Yes. Well, there's a point at which they're kind of 50-50. And the score and the, and the rock and roll beat are kind of playing off against each other, creating a great tension in the scene. Oh, yeah. And then finally, when they're off and running, we go back into action music. How much of that determination? Well, I just have to say, yeah. the, the, the way it worked for me was I... Uh, it was non-intellectual process of editing. The footage, most of which I cut MOS to begin with. Interesting. Yeah, and I do that a lot. That goes back to your question of an hour ago, in which you asked, what can I do to keep objectivity? One way I do that is by cutting a lot of stuff without dialogue. I do the exact same thing. Cut without sound, even for dialogue. Yeah, because, because first of all, I, I have an overlying belief that a movie should tell a story visually and be able to work on a purely visual level anyway, even though sound is crucial. But you're starting with the visual image. And, and the drama and the conflicts and the oppositional moments between two characters are clear in a movie, in a good movie, even if you can't understand what they're saying. You can still get the score. Viewing dailies. How do you view dailies, and how uh, do you view them actively? Are you making notes? Do you like to watch them passively? And are you starting to construct the idea of the scene, even without actively doing it, while you're watching the dailies? All of the above. I, I view them on the Avid, usually on, on the client's monitor. I use the script notes as well, just so I can get the immediate input from whatever notes the director may have conveyed, so that I understand there's a technical issue where they changed the lighting in take six, for example, or did something to change the way that they were working that became a more favored approach. So I want to know all the intelligence as to why one take is printed and another take is selected as well. And then, of course, there's my own fresh observations as to what the best speeds are, or the best camera moves, or the best choreography, or the magical moments. And I take notes, and I do all that. Then I go through the material again and build a select rule and make some decisions as to what line readings and what parts of tapes I want to use. And then as I'm doing that, I try to envision what my structure is going to be. Am I going to start on the master? Am I going to start on an extreme close-up? Am I going to pre-lap a line of dialogue and come into a hard, tight shot of a hand hitting a desk? Whatever it is, whatever the transitional moment is. And that will explain the transition, and then I'll figure out where I'm going from there. I really appreciate all the time you spent with me, uh, Mark. It's a true privilege to speak to uh, an editor of your stature, and uh, it's wonderful to talk to you. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Nice talking to you, Steve. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out Pro Video Coalition for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors or my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, available on Amazon. 
Thanks again to my guest, Mark Goldblatt, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.